five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the third episode of our annual summer season special. Today we have another Future in Space operation presentation from Joe Lazio and Mark Sanchez-Net from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who will discuss on-demand access for deep space operations. Listen in. Okay, thank you Harley, thank you Dan. Um, so I hope that you've all had a chance to download the presentation. Thanks to Harley and Dan and the organizers for giving us the opportunity to, to describe some of the work that, that's been going on, uh, looking toward the future of deep space operations. Uh, as the pictures on the cover slide hint, perhaps more from the ground side than the flight side. Uh, and as as is usually the case, although um, Mark and I are giving the presentation, there are many people who have contributed to it or contributed to the underlying technical work, and you can see some of them uh, listed here. Uh, on, on slide one, uh, I guess we used a, a C-based numbering system here. So the first slide that actually has the outline uh, provide a bit of motivation for why we're even thinking about this topic. And then I'm, I will do that, and then I will turn it over to Mark to do uh, a description of the concept architecture, some of the, well, the core capabilities that we've identified for this, and some discussion of, of who benefits. Slide two, uh, one of the motivating factors or a significant motiva motivating factor for the work we're gonna describe has to do what, with what we're seeing in terms of the deep space, uh, future deep space mission suite. Uh, at JPL, there are various models that are run over the course of a year looking at projecting ahead, potentially a couple of decades ahead based on um, NASA budgets and known proposal opportunities and like for what the, the deep space mission sweep might look like. Um, those continually show a, an increase in time. On top of that, there are multiple communities, multiple science communities that are either in the midst of their decadal surveys or are about to start. And for those not familiar with this, the, the, the science communities within the, the United States do a regular, uh, a decadal process of evaluating science priorities and uh, assess, well, evaluating science opportunities and then assessing priorities for how to execute them over the next decade or, or more. And what this typically means on the ground is what new telescopes should be built and in space, what new missions. So what you can see here on the left is one of the white papers that was submitted to the Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal. And it illustrates the concept of essentially a, uh, a, a multi-use space, spacecraft bus. You have, uh, you can imagine, it's kind of like the old Model T. As long as you want exactly this form factor, you can have it and it'll go anywhere in the solar system. And this is actually not any more implausible with companies now producing many hundreds of or thousands of spacecraft for Earth orbit. It is probably only a matter of time until such capabilities, maybe not in quite the number, but it will expand beyond low Earth orbit. And indeed, some of the other papers within the planetary science and astrobiology uh, call uh, illustrated such possibilities. The, the middle panel shows the 
a, a poster that was put together for the Helio 2050 workshop. So this is sort of a, a looking forward by the heliophysics community. And you can see what I, I highlighted there. The authors were arguing for a multi-point fleet, meaning the diverse uh, locations across the solar system, probably the outer solar system, uh, in this case to, to study the solar wind. So it's quite plausible that coming out of at least the planetary science decadal survey and maybe multiple such decadal surveys, there will be the idea of small spacecraft uh, spread across the solar system in diverse locations, different planetary bodies, uh, Earth-Sun Lagrange points, Earth-Moon Lagrange points. Uh, particularly within astrophysics, there's a lot of interest in so-called probe concepts, which are uh, Potentially, many of them would go out to the Earth-Sun L2 point, which if you know that, it's actually a halo orbit. It's a very large halo orbit, so it's uh, fairly broad on the sky. But the big idea is that we're potentially looking at many, many more spacecraft in the future. So how does that then translate to what's needed on the ground? And slide three. Uh, slide three is is uh, our transition slide, so I'm going to hand it over to Mark in a minute. But today, just to give you a, a reference, the Deep Space Network is currently enabling something like 40 missions uh, on a daily or weekly basis. So if you integrate across the week, there's something like uh, 40, let's say three dozen missions uh, that have some tracking or telecommunications with the Deep Space Network. And looking forward, you know, even when Artemis 1 launches, uh, there will be something of order a dozen CubeSats that will be deployed from it. They'll probably, well, I don't know what their lifetimes will be, but that's already, you know, a, a good 25% increment. Um, and looking farther toward the future, you know, over the next decade or so, it's quite plausible that there will be many, many small spacecraft. So how does the ground respond? And then there are other aspects. Not only might there be more, but they would become more capable, have uh, additional capabilities on board that, that today's spacecraft do not have. So with that, uh, Mark, if you'd like to augment uh, anything that I've said about this slide, uh, and then I, the, I will turn the floor to you. Okay, thank you, Joe. I'm, uh, thank you, thank Joe. you Joe. Am I? Can you hear me okay? It's a bit of an echo, but but proceed for the moment. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm no, getting the echo too. But, okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, why don't we move to slide four? four. Uh, so, what you see here are the main challenges that we see when we think about how our infrastructure is. What are the kinds of our infrastructure with respect to the future? customer base for the for the GSM and for the ground data system. And basically we've broken it down in three categories. There is uh inability of supporting what we call agile science. Did we lose Mark? Uh sorry. There is Mark there is a bit of there is a bit of an echo. Do you have a way of, of adjusting something? Is it better now? Can you hear me? Yeah, that's much better. Yes. Okay. Please proceed. Yep. Thank you. Because I was, it was also, I also had the echo, and so I was having a lot of trouble um, talking, even myself. Okay. So the first part is the agile science, and 
Um, Joe kind of alluded to that um, a, while, um, a second ago um, in the sense that our spacecraft are becoming increasingly more autonomous and are able to do things like science detection um, by themselves as opposed to having to send up measurements to the ground and then the ground decides if something interesting has happened. And so the question here is, if we have a mission concept in which, it, in which the mission is capable of detecting, uh, of detecting a scientific event, and it needs to communicate that to the ground so that we can schedule follow-on observations, how do we support that? Well, currently we don't have a good way to do that. What we're proposing here with the demand, with the demand access is, uh, is actually um, part of the answer to that problem. The, the second part of the problem is uh, the need to scale, um, and that has to do with uh, how do you support this explosion of small sats and possibly cube sats, um, and that has to do both with um, giving them time on our DSN antennas, but also how do we scale our ground data systems so that we, they can process larger, larger amounts of data or they can process multiple data flows that come from many more spacecraft. Um, and then there's a, there's a third challenge which has to do with coordination effort, right? The more spacecraft you have, the more you scale. If you do nothing, um, you have essentially an exponential growth in the amount of effort that you have to put into the system to make sure that everything coordinates. Um, so one of, the, one of the core ideas of this um, demand access is that it needs to be automated as much as possible um, so that we don't have to we basically avoid this, uh, this pitfall of, of uh, coordination efforts. Okay, slide number five. So the, the, the concept for the demand access is basically to provide a way for spacecraft to request DSN and ground data system support um, directly without um, the ground intervening. So this is kind of what you see here in this pictorial representation where the spacecraft basically issues an alert, and that alert is picked up by the DSN and is forwarded all the way to the end user, um, and that end user can be either uh, mission operations or in some cases it can be um, a scientist if the reason why the issue is being alerted is a scientific event. So we envision this as a seamless end-to-end -end service uh, that goes from the spacecraft all the way to the, to the end user. One. Um, uh, and I guess I should say, as such, uh, it's not just about the DSN. It has to encompass the DSN, but also include the ground data system and mission operations and scientists, and even the PDFs if we're thinking about um, having automated data archival for the observations that are being taken by the spacecraft. So it really includes um, many parts of the, um, of the, of the mission. And um, finally, the last point that I want to make is that although we are proposing to develop these new capabilities to provide on-demand operations for missions, that does not mean that we need to replace what we currently have today. Um, so we, we, we have lots of missions where we know with high degree of certainty everything that the mission, that the mission will do um, and which parts of a, of a planetary body, for instance, will be observed for those type of missions. Um, we don't want to break the way that they do operations. We don't want to force them to do something else. Um, what we want to build is something that augments what we currently have and allows this new way of doing operations, which is based on demand access. 
implied number six. So implied number six, uh, what you have is a, sort of a cartoonish representation of the concept. Um, and on the left-hand side, you see the three core capabilities that I'll be, that I'll be discussing in some more detail uh, in, the, in the next slide. But essentially, what, what you need to have in order to have demand access is you need to have what we call this on-demand DSM service, so a way for the spacecraft to ping the DSM and let them know something has happened, I need help. Uh, we need to have something that once this request is received, figures out when is the actual communication with the spacecraft and the, and the satellite, when is it going to happen? Um, and these are, we, we see these as two different things. The first thing is just, I let you know that something has happened, but I, I, don't, I haven't told you yet what it is. Um, and then I'm going to allocate time for you to basically do the actual data transfer. Um, and then a third element of the, of the system is obviously having a ground data system that is reactive and that it can basically adapt to new requests as they come in from the spacecraft. You also see here um, the, the notion of, of a queuing antenna. So if you look at the top right corner, you'll see that the spacecraft or the fleet of spacecraft put place requests on what we call a queuing antenna. Um, and then these requests are basically um, scheduled into our larger DSN antennas, um, which are then used for communication. Okay, so slide number seven. So now I'm going to go into a little bit of detail into the uh, into a little bit of detail about the three capabilities that I just described. So I'll start with the on-demand DSM service, um, and basically um, the, what we're what we're doing here, or our our plan is to um, have a way for spacecraft to place requests to the DSM um, by using a very basic signaling scheme. So there's no need to. So the, the idea is we want to be as simple as possible. We want to be as power efficient as possible so that smaller apertures can reach far into the solar system. Um, and also um, to keep things as simple as possible, this is, this is the, the request mechanism is on the downlink direction only. So the, space, the spacecraft places the request um, and uh, it doesn't really have, uh, uh, it doesn't really know if the request has been received or not. But even, even though that is the case, we can still later on um, achieve the demand access. And I, I'll talk a little bit about how this, how this works in a second. Um, one thing that is not, uh, not, uh, that is not worthy here is that uh, what we're proposing for the request mechanism is not something new. It's actually something that is already operational in the DSN and has actually been demonstrated in New Horizons. Although um, what they, so what, what we're encouraging is basically the signal format um, New Horizons did, did not use demand access. Everything was scheduled ahead of time, but the signaling scheme is, is uh, it's, it's basically the same one. Excuse me. And excuse me, Mark and Joe. Um, this is Dan. I'm just, just uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to appreciate. Can, can you give any recent examples of deep space situations that on-demand DSN would have helped in? I mean, in the last couple of years, what can you look at and say, "Gee whiz, I sure wish we had," uh, uh, I sure wish we had on-demand DSN. Can you can you uh, tell us? Can, can you enlighten us about that? 
part of the part of the reason we're describing this capability is to make the larger community aware that it actually helps enable more missions as well as in order to enable more missions um, this kind of service may be needed uh, and I'm realizing in addition to the new horizons uh, a similar scheme is used for instance when Mars 2020 or the Perseverance rover actually multiple rovers uh, went into Mars they're essentially thermographs that are used or a similar scheme just to indicate spacecraft health. So as a way of monitoring what is happening with spacecraft without having to go through a full scheduling process, uh, this enables multiple missions to be handled much more efficiently than having to schedule a lot. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I guess so what you're saying is this is really about expanding capability rather than fixing a problem that you've been that you've been having exactly yeah okay yeah that's fine all right thank you very much okay go ahead mark uh, thanks Joe. um uh so um so just uh um right so the so the, the the way that this works is uh, is is basically the spacecraft uh, to be as to make it as simple as possible. The spacecraft just transmits a subcarrier. That's that's the gist of the idea. And the frequency of the subcarrier tells you um, something about what the state of the spacecraft is um, and whether the DSN needs to schedule resources um, and uh, to respond to that event. Um, so. Nominally, right now, what the VSM supports are four tones, um, so four different uh, subcarrier frequencies. And as you can imagine, if you get a nominal, um, a, a nominal tone, what that means is that the spacecraft is operating as expected, and so you don't need to um, bother scheduling time in the larger VSM antenna. Um, you just keep going. Um, then you have a couple of categories for um, which we call interesting and important, um, which is basically ways for the spacecraft to, not, to notify Earth that something interesting has happened and that it needs to be serviced, um, and you get a little bit of uh, granularity for the, for the criticality of the, of the request, um, which helps us on the back end to figure out how, um, fast, how fast of a turnaround the spacecraft needs in terms of actually getting, getting DSN resources. Um, then there's the possibility of getting an urgent tone, which we interpret to uh, be equivalent to a critical a critical event, and so in that case, um, ground inter intervention is essentially immediate, immediately required. Um, and then there's, there's obviously the possibility of not not receiving the tone when you expect it. Um, and the our our premise is that this is equivalent to an anomaly. Um, but obviously, the the actual interpretation of what the tones mean. Um, this is something that is project specific. Each mission can decide exactly how they want to set it and how they want to use it. Um, VSN just provides the capability of receiving the tone and identifying which one which tone is received, and then um, the mission can um, can customize these um, as much as they want. Okay, so I'm sorry. Slide eight. Uh, so in slide eight, uh, you see the two parts of the of the puzzle. So you you see the queuing antenna, which is notionally a smaller antenna, 18, 21, 22 meters, 
um, in diameter, and I'll show in a second that that, that is enough to essentially cover um, the entire solar system. Um, and then you have, uh, we have our normal DSN antennas, uh, the 70 meter and the 34. Um, so the, the, the 18 meter antenna is the one that picks up the request using the signaling scheme that I, um, that I presented in the previous slide. And then the actual data communication happens with uh, one of the larger antennas that you see here. Uh, one, uh, um, one additional item that I want to mention, um, we have the DSM currently has three DSM complexes, uh, uh, Goldstone, Madrid, and Canberra, and together they provide 360-degree uh, coverage um, of uh, the Earth equator, essentially. Uh, the same type of coverage uh, would event we envision that the system would have the same type of coverage for um, when it comes to the queuing antenna. So we would have a queuing antenna that serves each, each of the three complexes. The queuing antenna itself does not need to be in the complex. Um, it, can, it, it is possible that we can provide it um, using partners, and um, that's one of the um, elements that we are currently investigating um, using uh, an antenna at Moorhead State University as the queuing antenna for, for the Goldstone um, uh, longitude, essentially. Um, and later on, we'll think about how we scale that so that we get full coverage of Earth. Okay, slide number uh, nine shows uh, a graph that gives you uh, an intuition of how far into the solar system you can get a request from a spacecraft, um, depending um, on the type of mission and also depending on the antenna that you are that you are putting on the ground. So um, just uh, just to break down the plot a little bit on the x-axis, what you have is distance from Earth uh, in logarithmic logarithmic scale. Um, and on top of that, I provided a few waypoints uh, so that you get a sense for how far that is in the solar system. There's two y-axis. Uh, one on the left and one on the right. They, they essentially provide the same information, which is the, the figure of merit of the performance of the ground antenna that we use to collect the requests from the spacecraft. Some people like talking about effective area. Um, other people like to talk about G over T. So um, just for convenience, you have the, the, uh, the conversion between the two numbers. And then um, you have three lines, a blue one, a red, an orange one, and a yellow one. And that's the um, required performance um, for different types of missions. So the blue line is for a CubeSat. Uh, and when I say CubeSat, I actually mean an interplanetary CubeSat, something similar to the Marco CubeSats that went to Mars, uh, not something similar to the CubeSats that would fly around Earth. Then we have, um, I have a line that is basically a typical mission, um, and then finally, uh, I call what I call a high-power mission, which is a, a mission that has additional, like more power than than what is typical for for data transmission. And you can and you can see that um, if you're trying to cover the, the the inner solar system with an 18 meter antenna with a cryo-cooled receiver, which is something that we're running currently in our DSN antenna, um, you can essentially cover um, the entire um, inner solar system for CubeSats and obviously for more capable missions. Um, also, for typical missions, you can essentially cover pretty much the entire solar system 
Um, not quite where the voyages are right now, but um, but pretty close. Marco? Yes. Uh, what about optical? I, I assume this is for RF. What about optical comp? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So we we didn't consider optical comp um, for the for the queuing part of the problem. Um, just because uh, it's a little bit more complicated uh, to set up optical links, um, and we we would force missions to carry an optical terminal. Uh, so we thought, um, let's make it as simple as possible, um, and in that way, uh, pretty much um, all missions um, are able to use this without uh, imposing more requirements on the mission. So, so the queuing would be RF, but you could have an optical comp for the actual data exchange, correct? Absolutely, yes, exactly right. Yeah. All right, thank you. Um, okay, so slide number 10 talks a little bit about, about the, the scheduling system. Um, so, again, um, basically with, um, what we're what we're building is a set of scheduling tools that help us get our requests from spacecraft and figure out how to place those requests into the DSN schedule um, so that then we can use our larger antenna to, for the actual data transmission. So you can see this um, sort of like graphically here. You have these uh, blue boxes that represent times where the DSN antenna is busy, um, and then these yellow boxes are times that are inserted into the um, into the DSN schedule to satisfy the request or the, the needs that has been identified by this spacecraft that has put in a request in the system. Um, and again, um, this is not these services are or the, these DSN scheduling tools that we're building. They are not intended to comp uh, to replace what we already have. They're intended they're intended to be a complement, right? So there, there's missions that will continue to operate in pre-scheduled mode, and, and uh, by all means, we, we need to, what we've come up is with a way um, in which the two, both demand access and pre-scheduled um, contacts can coexist um, in the same, in the same, with using the same antenna. To give you a sense um, for how it works, um, and I don't want to go into a little bit of, into a lot of detail, but um, basically, what you see here is, are the, is the, the scheduling process um, that we currently uh, use. So, uh, about seven months before the day of operations, uh, missions start to populate mission requirements in, uh, in the DSN system. And then we have a period that spans several months in which uh, we integrate, um, deconflict, and negotiate um, the requests or the, the the, the, the contact times that, uh, that the missions want from the VSN. Um, and we end up with, currently we end up with, a, with, a, with an operational schedule that then is executed. Um, what we would do to provide the demand access is uh, we would basically block times in the VSN schedule and prevent any mission from getting assigned that block of time. Um, and so they would, they, you can think of them as kind of free-floating periods of time that will be assigned in near real time um, in response to contacts from, uh, uh, sorry, from, in response to requests from missions. That way, missions that want to schedule their contacts ahead of time can do so as long as they stay away from these 
um, free-floating periods of time. And these free-floating periods of time are the ones that are assigned in real time when, when, um, when, a, when a mission changes the DSM. Um, so there's, there's uh, the, the way to do this. Um, the details are a little bit complicated, but um, suffice it to say there's, uh, there's part of the problem that is solved way ahead of time, and then there's part of the problem that has to do uh, with how do you optimally allocate resources in real time as, um, as requests from the spacecraft come in. Okay, slide number 12. Um, so this is, um, I'd like to give you a little bit of, a, of, a, of an intuition for what, is the, what are the gains that you can get if you uh, switch to the NAMP access. Um, so what we did here is we uh, did a simulation experiment in which we took uh, realistic uh, DSM schedules and we included an additional mission into the into the mission set. And that mission was actually it was it was one it was one mission, but it had multiple spacecraft. So it was a fleet of of, uh, of spacecraft. The number of spacecraft in the fleet was allowed to vary from one to ten small tasks. And we basically, well, we basically compared um, what was the performance um, that we would be giving um, all missions, not just the fleet, but all across the board, if we had done static scheduling, so what we do today, um, versus demand access. Uh, and what you see here in this table is that uh, doing demand access allows us to um, be more responsive um, so we can get the data down um, much faster. Uh, we also avoid uh, dropping science, um, which uh, in, the, in the static scheduling case occurs because uh, missions don't have the ability to get contact when they want to, and as a result, um, their buffers overflow. And so the, the mission loses data because it has to override part of the science that it has gathered. Um, before it can download it to the DSM. Um, and also, it shows that we are able to utilize our, the, the DSM tracks or the, the, the time with, it, with our antennas more effectively, right? So um, we, um, we, we are more efficient in the way we use, we use our antennas. Excuse me, excuse me, Mark. I, I want to I understand a little better. Uh, you're talking about queuing antennas. I want to understand what that is. As I understand it, a queuing antenna is just about receiving a trigger. That is, the queuing antenna is just receiving a request, and it's not about data rate. Um, it's so, it, so in principle, could be a small antenna. Is is that is is that correct? Yeah, you got it right. That's exactly what it is. Okay, I see. Well, then I guess I have to ask um, if if on demand um, communication, if you really want it to be twenty four seven. It requires that one uh, queuing antenna be always pointed at that spacecraft. Is, isn't that right? Uh, I mean, technically speaking, yes, um, you're right. You always would need to be listening. Um, what we envision here is that because the queuing antenna is smaller um, and because we use such a simple signaling scheme, we would have the queuing antenna hop between spacecraft um, fairly um, quickly, at least compared to how we operate our larger DSM antennas, so that the spacecraft would not have 100% um, time um, an antenna pointing towards it, 
um, but it would be with enough cadence that we that that the the, the whatever latency requirements the mission has, it would be satisfied. Um, okay, okay, that that makes a lot of sense. So that's saying that a particular spacecraft that needs attention only has to be trans only has to be requesting that attention for a certain length of time. And, and, and after the certain length of time, that spacecraft can be sure that, that the queuing antenna will, will get the signal. Um, so, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Wonderful. Yes. Okay, so let's switch to slide number 13. Uh, so the slide number 13 shows the last piece of the puzzle, which is the on-demand ground data system. Um, and Basically, um, what we propose here is uh, to move the ground data system for missions that want to use demand access to the cloud. Um, and the reason we want to do that um, is because the cloud offers us flex increased flexibility um, to turn things on and off uh, as requests from the queuing antenna um, come in. Uh, so that's and, and it also allows us to scale a little bit better, obviously. Um, now, uh, to, to get to give you an idea, this is something that is currently under development. So um, there's an effort at JPL um, that is intending to trans to um, port AMOS to the cloud. Um, if you're not familiar with AMOS, um, AMOS is a multi-mission um, ground data system that is built um, at JPL for NASA. Um, and uh, has been used in operation um, by several of our spacecraft. Um, so the idea here is that you would get the request for, um, you would get the request via the, the queuing antenna. This request would be processed and it would be sent um, to the on-demand scheduling service so that uh, one of our DSN, larger DSN antennas could be um, used for communication. Um, and at the same time, the, the, these on-demand ground data system would also be notified um, so that the necessary resources um, would be spin up or, uh, or spun down um, before and after each pass um, to service the, the data flows from the spacecraft. Um, and then both mission operations and the scientists would basically get their data directly from the cloud. Um, so it, it would all be integrated um, and, you know, like, uh, Basically, it would be sort of like a seamless end-to-end -end system from the point of view of, of, uh, of mission operations and scientists. You would get going all the way from the spacecraft to them. Uh, okay, so slide number 14, uh, who benefits? Um, so this is, um, this is a, a summary slide where I'm trying to summarize um, different types of missions that would benefit from the system that we're proposing. Um, and just to be perfectly clear, um, I'm not saying that all these types of missions need to use demand access. What I'm saying here is that some of the capabilities and components that we're building to, for demand access can be used to either enable um, or streamline uh, the operations of Space, of, of the spacecraft that we that we have today, and I'll show I'll show that in a second um, when I run through one example of um, how you one way in which a mission could use demand access um, for their life for its life cycle. Um, but if we if we just look for a second to this category at uh, this category, so 
um, it's 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 quite varied, right? From from legacy flagship missions. So this is something similar to Cassini or to Juno, um, which they currently they're operated in a, in 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 a pre-scheduled manner. Um, so um, it's it's a very traditional way of doing operations, but they also have very long cruises to their destination. Um, so demand access could be used during the cruise, um, and that would you know reduce the amount of tracking time that they need from the VSN, which in turn means that um, it's a cost savings um, argument for them, and it probably is also um, some savings in terms of staffing. Um, you could use it also um, for autonomous spacecraft. Um, we've talked about this, the fact that if you have a spacecraft that is capable of detecting science events of interest and wants to communicate that to the to Earth as soon as they happen, um, demand actually is the way to do that. It allows you to have this reactivity. Um, obviously, within the within the limitations of the propagation delay, there's you you can't do anything about that. But um, um, but uh, but uh, it, it allows you to have increased um, rea um, reactivity. And then the last part that is big, obviously, is supporting the, these fleets of small sets. Right? Uh, if you have many of them, instead of having to assign dedicated tracks for each one individually, you can have them um, just putting requests to the VSN as they need them, and in doing so, um, you know, like you, you're not overwhelming the VSN with contact time from for all these spacecraft, some of which might have data to send and some others might not have data to send, and then you've wasted um, your contact listening to a spacecraft that is currently um, that currently needs no um, um, no service. Um, okay, so uh, slide number 16, um, this is a little bit of an eye chart, um, but I wanted to quickly summarize um, how we see um, uh, a, 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 a multi doing operations in traditional, in the traditional way, so how you would do it today versus how you would do it with on-demand operations. Um, and just to be clear, this is a notional exercise, right? Each mission is allowed, you know, they, they we, we just provide a capability, and then the mission can decide um, how they want to leverage it. Um, but this is a way that, you know, a, a small site going to the moon could, um, could take advantage of, our, um, of, of, of the system that we're proposing here. So if you look at the um, – so, so the way this works is there's two rows. Um, the top row is traditional CONOPS, the way it works today. Um, the bottom row is on-demand CONOPS. And then there's several columns, and the columns tell you – um, where you are in the mission life cycle, from, from launch and early operations all the way to extended time. Um, the, the bottom, the, excuse me, the top row is um, fairly straightforward. So um, during launching crews, you get uh, service. We show a DSN antenna. It might not be a DSN antenna because you're, you're, you're close to it, but in any case, you have ground communication. You have service from one of the antennas on the ground. And then you're 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 cruising into lunar space. Uh, you're going to have periodic checkpoints with the VSN to make sure that everything's fine. You might have along the way TCMs, uh, which stands for trajectory correction maneuvers. Um, and when you do those, um, you typically fire your engines, and so you have um, additional um, extended VSN time uh, to help you figure out 
where you are before you fired your thrusters and after you fire them um, to make sure that the TCM was successful. Um, then you have a period of orbit insertion um, and checkout, which is probably going to be, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a critical phase. You want to make sure that the spacecraft goes, uh, gets into inserting its final orbit. And then after that, you're going to go into primary science and extended science. And during that period, um, most missions um, have sort of like this repeating pattern where if you, I'm showing here notionally an elliptical orbit. Some missions have a circular orbit, but let's, let's assume it's elliptical for now. Um, what you would do is you would just fly close to, to the moon. Um, you would operate your instrument, gather your data. For a, for a while, and then after that, you will get downlink opportunities to get the data back to Earth, um, do some tracking time, and then also um, an opportunity to uplink data from the from the ground to the to the to the mission. Um, so now, if you if you look at the bottom at the bottom row, uh, in on-demand operations, there's part of the life cycle of the mission that need, that doesn't need to change. Um, so. But most notably, if you're doing something that is considered critical, um, then uh, demand access doesn't really make sense. You really want to make sure that you have the ascent time um, and ground time um, and you have all decks on board. Um, so that's kind of what I'm showing here during, during launch and um, early ops, during orbit insertion. Um, just do what we're doing. Just continue to do what we're doing now. It works fine. Um, but then we can start um, – we can start helping um, the mission chain save uh, money and time by changing the way in which we do, for instance, here's lunar cruise. So um, maybe uh, instead of doing periodic checkups that are pre-scheduled, let the mission decide if, um, if, uh, if a checkup is needed. Uh, and if it's not, then, you know, uh, no need to – no need to um, schedule the ascent time and, and bring people on board to um, to support the um, the contact. And during science orbits, um, one way that we could um, that you can use demand access is you can uh, instead of having uh, pre-fixed contact opportunities between the spacecraft and the ground, you can basically um, have a period of time um, in which uh, you have a flexible track. Right. So at some point. The spacecraft is going to get tracked. Um, it doesn't know exactly when, but on average, you can you can you can guarantee the spacecraft. On average, you're going to get let's say one track per orbit, um, and so the spacecraft can then manage its resources, um, assuming that you know without necessarily knowing exactly when the track will happen, but um, with uh, a high degree of confidence that uh, you know mission objectives will still be met. Okay, so slide number 16. This is um, our last slide, um, and um, I just want to kind of give you a recap of um, what we're proposing um, and what we're, build what we're building. So um, essentially um, what, I, what we want to have is a, is a way for um, what we're building is a demand access for deep space operations. Um, uh, as we mentioned before, it is uh, not so much to fix the problem that we have now, it's more about enabling a uh, future mission suite that we think is going to be larger than what we have today, um, and that in itself has challenges, but also um, it has to do with the fact that we are going to have a more diverse mission suite with small sets and with autonomous spacecraft, so we have to be adaptable and be responsive to their, to their needs. Um, we see the demand access as something that is end-to-end. -end. It's just 
um, it's not just the VSM. It has to also encompass um, the ground data system and um, even the mission operations um, scientists, if, you know, the alerts are meant for scientists um, and the planetary data system for data archival. It's uh, something that uh, is intended to be, uh, or we, we're building it as an expansion to what we have. So it's not meant to be a radical change that will, you know, change the way in which we do operations for all spacecraft. Um, it's supposed to be something that builds upon what we already have available. Um, and uh, finally, the last comment that I want to make uh, before I turn it over to Joe again is that um, I haven't, we haven't talked much about it, but uh, there's several elements of um, this concept that we've described that are already in development and in testing. Um, so this is not something um, that is um, at this point just a concept. There is, uh, there is uh, quite a bit of um, technology that is already available um, and so we're already testing to, to make this become a reality. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you.